So if this is your first time at Refuge, uh, welcome. You came on a day that like a lot of stuff's going on. You're like, I'm already overwhelmed. Sorry about that. Um, but we're actually beginning a new series uh, as a part of our year of biblical literacy. And we're going to do a mini-series this morning beginning on the story of God. So we're going to start in Genesis 1. So if you have a Bible, Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to skip on down to 26 through 31. So I'm reading out of ESV. It says, in the beginning, or a long time ago, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without shape, and it was empty. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Then God said, let us make man in our image, and after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion or rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. This is God's word. You can be seated. So, as a part of our year of biblical literacy, we've been, uh, we did a mini-series on the Bible. So, for the last four weeks, we've been looking at uh, the Bible specific, specifically. What is it? Uh, what it does it claim about itself, its authority, its accuracy, its purpose? Uh, and in our teaching, what the Bible is, we talked about how the Bible is, first of all, a story. And I, I think I need to clarify this. I heard somebody else talking about this, and I was like, oh, yeah, I should probably clarify it. When we say story, we don't mean fairy tale, right? So that's not what we're saying. But we're talking about a congruent narrative that gives meaning and shape to our lives. And everyone, every living person, uh, well, I guess up to a certain, down to a certain age. I don't know if Judah and, and Hudson and Evelyn have this yet. But everyone has a grand narrative that they are living by. A story that they tell themselves about why we are here, how we got here, and where this life is going. And we, we call these worldviews, or we call them meta-narratives, right? It's a real or grand story that provides a framework of meaning for all people in all times and places. 
And therefore, it gives meaning to our own life in the world. So when we call the Bible a story, we mean the story of God, his creation of the world, its fall into sin, evil and death, and ultimately God's redemption of the world. And Christians believe that this is the true story that provides us with an understanding of the whole world and our place and our purpose in it. Uh, I love this. This is from N.T. Wright's book, Surprised by Hope. If you have not read Surprised by Hope, This might be one of the most clarifying Christian books on just what the Christian life is and how we should be thinking about um, our mission in the world. So I highly recommend this book, and I know I do that every week, and I'm sorry uh, because you're like, I'm reading my Bible for the first time. Good. Don't do anything else, okay? Okay, so, but he says this, Scripture, the Old and the New Testaments, It's the story of creation and new creation. Within that, it is the story of covenant and new covenant. When we read scripture as Christians, we read it precisely as people of the new covenant and the new creation. We do not read it, in other words, as a flat, uniform list of regulations or doctrines. We read it as the narrative in which we ourselves are now called to take part. We read it to discover the story so far and also how it's supposed to end. To put it another way, we Christians live somewhere between the end of the Acts of the Apostles and the closing scene of Revelation. If we want to understand Scripture and to find it doing its proper work in us and through us, we must learn to read and understand it in light of that overall Story, And so this is what we're going to do for the next six weeks. We're going to talk about the story of God. And there are really six scenes. I guess you could make it four, but we're going to make it into six scenes of the story of God. And the number one is the creation. Number two is the fall, how creation, how the world has been corrupted, why there's death, why there's evil, why there's decay. And then we're going to talk about God's plan to redeem, and that begins with Abraham. And he is the father of of the nation of Israel. And then that is fulfilled in Jesus, passed on to the church, and then ultimately culminates in the kingdom of God where Jesus is king. And so we're going to look at kind of these six uh, different scenes uh, throughout the next six weeks. Yes, you guessed it. So this morning, we're going to start with creation. And it might be a little review as to some of the stuff we said when we were doing our series on the Bible, but whatever, right? Okay, so we just read the account here, and I know that there is more to it than I read. But as we read through Genesis 1, there are three principal themes that emerge in the account of creation. Everyone I know struggles with Genesis, especially Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And the problem is, we've talked about this before, is that we are forcing 21st century questions upon the text. Questions that the writer of Genesis never meant to address, didn't care about. It's just like, that's not what he's talking about. And it's almost like we're... I heard somebody talk about this recently. There's like, it's almost like you're going to the history section of a library and you're looking for a cookbook. You know, you're looking for a recipe. You're just in the wrong place. 
And you're not going to get those answers, and you're going to get a really weird meal out of that, you know, with none of the right ingredients. But we constantly do this. But if you step back and actually look at what is Genesis trying to teach us, what are we supposed to take away from the creation? That's what we want to look at this morning. And there are three principal themes that emerge from this creation account. And the first is this. It is the total and uncompromised power of God as creator. So this is the first thing we see in the Genesis account. God is supreme king. And this is something that, I mean, you could read the Bible for years and be like, oh my gosh, God is king. It says it all over the Psalms. It says it all over the New Testament. It says it in the prophets. It says it again and again and again. But you could read Genesis and you're asking the wrong questions and you're not realizing that it's shouting to you the supreme authority and power of God. So we're going to talk about that. The second thing is the intrinsic order and balance of the created world or the goodness of creation. The world in which we live is intrinsically good. And this is in contrast to philosophies that have existed you know, for thousands and thousands of years telling us that matter is evil, that flesh, the physical, is something that we need to be released from and we need to escape. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that this world in which we live is actually intrinsically good and God will redeem this world. He won't throw it away and make another one. He's going to renew it. Third thing, Mankind has a key position in the scheme of creation. Humans are covenant partners with God in ruling over the creation. As I said, people, Christians and non-Christians, get Genesis so wrong because they're trying to force modern questions upon an ancient text. But these are the three things that Genesis is trying to tell us, or Genesis 1 and 2 is trying to tell us. And we need to ask ourselves, I encourage you guys as you're reading and studying the Bible, we need to ask ourselves what the author was trying to communicate and to whom he was trying to communicate. What is Genesis 1 and 2 for? Is it for a creation evolution debate? Is the purpose of Genesis to tell us how old the earth is? No, it's not. It's clear that the author of Genesis did not have science in mind when he wrote down and recorded these things. Now, we're going to talk about more of this uh, in a minute, but let me just kind of put you back in, gosh, I don't even know, like the time of Abraham, the time of Moses. Let me put you back in the biblical world and let you understand what everyone else, what all the other nations were saying about the world, about God, and about humanity. Because Genesis 1 is unmistakably reacting against the prevailing Near Eastern cosmogenies of the time. And this is what most of the cultures surrounding Israel believed. They believed that the earth was a battlefield and it came out of, uh, it was birthed out of violence and war. They believed that the gods were angry. You know, Gilgamesh, right? You guys know the story of Gilgamesh, it's another flood account. And the reason the, the, the gods flood the earth and kill humanity is because humans are so noisy and obnoxious. And so they kill them all. Because they just hate humans. Anyway, all that's to say. Okay, so here's just an example. The Babylonian creation story, a common narrative of the world back in those days was filled with death and violence of war and God. So according to the ancient Babylonian epic Enuma Elish, 
Their god, their head god, Marduk, was the creator of heaven and earth. Marduk rises out of a fierce battle of the gods. Uh, It's kind of like, you know, the Pantheon. It's like Mount Olympus. There's a bunch of gods, but Marduk rises as this champion. And he battles the ocean god Tiamat, and he violently murders her. He splits her down the middle. He like, it's so graphic. It's like he shoves a spear into her, you know, it pierces her, and she begins to fall apart. And then he cuts her in half, like right down the middle. And then what he does is he uses half of her carcass to create heaven. And the other part of her body he uses to make earth, right? And then Marduk is like, gosh, this is hard work. I'm going to create humans out of the blood of this other god, Quingu. I'm going to take his blood and I'm going to mix it with the dirt and the soil. And I'm going to create humans to bear my burden because I'm tired. And I don't want to have to deal with all the affairs of the world and humans and creation all this stuff. So I'll create humans to be my slave and to bear the burdens of the gods. It says, after this, the great gods convened and they made Marduk's destiny highest. They established him forever for lordship of heaven and earth. His word shall be supreme above and below. He shall appoint the black-headed folk to serve him. I don't even know what that means. I don't even want to go there this morning. Uh, So this is what the surrounding cultures of Israel believed about the gods, the world, and human origins. This might be different from what you studied in Genesis, but I believe four main things Genesis 1-2 is teaching us. I mentioned these already. Just in contrast to this, Yahweh is king, the creation or world is intrinsically good, humans are created in God's image, and humans are called to be covenant partners with God. So those are the things we're going to look at this morning, okay? So as you open up the pages of Genesis, it's striking how alike and unalike these two tales are. And Christians trip up about this kind of stuff, okay? Don't. There's this amazing book called The Gospel in the Greeks, and it goes back and it looks at about how all of these myths are very similar to the biblical story. And that shouldn't be surprising for us if we believe that all people came from Adam and Eve or all people came from Noah and his family. They would have similar stories that they told. And what the Bible is saying is, yes, yes, they are alike, but this is the true story, and look how different it is at the same time. So let's look at the difference. This narrative also involves God, the chaotic waters, the forming of heaven and earth, and the creation of humanity. But instead of being an act of violence and war, creation is an act of power, beauty, and love. God is not at war with other gods. He is the supreme, unrivaled sovereign who commands with a word, and it is done. There's no battle Right? He isn't having to like pummel any other gods or you know, pull rank or anything like that. He speaks, and it's established. He brings order out of chaos. He names day, night, sky, earth, and sea, and they bend and obey him. This is from Everett Fox's book, The Five Books of Moses. He says, God is introduced into the narrative of Genesis without any description of origins, sex, or limitations of power. As the only functioning character of the chapter, he occupies center stage. There is not opposition, no resistance to his acts of creation, which occur in perfect harmony with his express word. He's unrivaled. 
God is displayed in Genesis 1 as the supreme king in contrast to Marduk. He does, God does not have to fight for this title. He speaks and it is done. He brings order out of chaos. He names, as I said, these, he calls things into life and into being. And I think the theme of creation, if we really step back and we ask the right questions, is this. With his powerful word, the king of the universe created the earth as his good kingdom. Now remember, we have to ask, why did Moses write this? Who was he writing this to? Well, Moses was writing this for the nation of Israel. And he was showing them that their God, Yahweh, the one who delivered them out of slavery in Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, is the same God who created all things. He is the sovereign God. He has no rival or equal. Yahweh is not in competition with Ra, the sun god of Egypt. He's not in competition with Baal, the god of the Canaanites. There are all sorts of applications you can pull out of their context, the context of the Israelites. I mean, think about it. The Israelites don't need to fear the scarcity of the wilderness. Why? Because God brought life out of a world that was empty and that was a wasteland. He can do it again. And he does, doesn't he? Right? Manna in the wilderness. And he says in Deuteronomy 8, I fed you with bread that you did not know. This miraculous provision from God, he calls the things that are not as though they are. He calls life out of nothing. Surely God can, can sustain his people in the wilderness. The sun, moon, and stars, if you go on to read the narrative, that are associated with the powerful gods of the surrounding nations are created by Yahweh's powerful word along with the rest of creation. So the nation of Israel, they don't need to fear Ra. They don't need to fear Baal, as I said, or any of the gods of other nations, for the almighty God, creator of heaven and earth, is their God and their protector. He rules over all. So what's the first thing Genesis is trying to tell us, Genesis 1 and 2? God is... Guys, I just spent 15 minutes with this. Come on. You fail. God is king. Okay? That is like one of the resounding messages of the Bible. God is king. He's the true king. And we're far away from him. And this world is not what he meant it to be. And yet, he has entered into time and history as king. Jesus, the king of the Jews, to redeem and renew this world and make it his good kingdom again. I'm way ahead of myself in the narrative. So the first theme of Genesis is God is king. The second thing we see is, as I said, the intrinsic goodness of God's creation or the earth as God's good kingdom. So Genesis teaches that the creation is intrinsically good. Many people and cultures throughout history have believed and practiced a sort of dualism, and especially Christians. It's a shame, right? We're like, oh, the way to be holy is to not do any physical things because the physical is bad because, you know, I lust with my body and I desire this, you know, flesh and I desire these physical things. So what do I do? I get rid of all that and I am a spiritual being. You know, and I'll just exist as a spiritual being. And then one day when I die, I will leave this physical and become a spiritual being in heaven in the clouds forever with God. And that is Platonism, and it's not what the Bible says at all. So you're not even a Christian. So, whatever. Um, Just kidding. But we get it wrong. That's not what the Bible says at all. No, the Bible says that the the earth is good. And, And if you read this, God, in the narrative, he's... On the earth, he's walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. They're hanging out. And you know what? Their flesh is not a 
uh, it doesn't bar them from the presence of God. The physical doesn't bar them from the presence of God. It's all there and in harmony. The physical world was created by God to be a place where he would dwell in peace and harmony with humanity. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2, we'll talk about this in, in a few minutes, but it's filled with temple language. We're used to thinking of temples as buildings, brick and mortar. God originally established the whole world as his temple. The divine, the sacred, was not confined to a building, but filled the whole creation. Now, I mentioned this already, but in contrast to the surrounding cultures, Genesis teaches that the creation is not a result of violence and war, but an act of supreme love. God creates the world and he creates humanity to share, to, to, for fellowship, for friendship. It's an act of love. If, if you like read the Gospel of John, the first pages, it's like this incredible thing. Like the Holy Trinity is dwelling forever in perfect harmony and deference to one another and perfect love. And it's like the Trinity says, we want to create humans who can also enjoy this fellowship. And John writes that this is why the Son of God came, to bring us into that fellowship of God, to bring us into the deepest love and the deepest fellowship that the world has ever known. God is a community. And he creates the universe, he creates the world out of divine love to bring us into his community. It's, it's incredible. And it's, it's so, like, extreme contrast with what the surrounding nations believed about the world, believed about the gods, believed about themselves. Again and again in the narrative, God says that the product of his work is good. Night and day, sun, moon, stars, land and sea, trees and plants, sea animals, birds and beasts. Everything is good. It is harmonious and at peace. It's not perfect. It doesn't ever say that it's perfect, but it says that it's good. So we should probably take away from that. It's at a state of immaturity. It can grow into perfection, but it is good, intrinsically good. And I don't know about you, but when I read just God's language, of he, he creates, and then, oh, it was good. And he saw that, and it was good. And then he creates mankind, and he says, it's very good. It's like an artist who is delighting in the music that he's making, or the painting that he's painting, or she's painting. Just to step back and say, oh, it's what I wanted it to be. And, and, and it says that he's, you know, we assume that the angels are there, Delighting in, actually, it says that in Job, that the sons of God shouted for joy when God established the foundations of the earth. They shouted in triumph, oh, praise be to God, look at what he's making, look how good it is, look how beautiful it is. God is delighting in his work, it's good. The earth is filled, the psalmist will say, with wonderful natural resources that make for life. The earth is filled, he says, with the steadfast love of the Lord. The whole world has natural resources for life, evidence all around us of God's goodness and God's provision. The world is intrinsically good, and God created originally to be his dwelling place with humans. Now, the third point, humans, in the biblical narrative, are God's image bearers. Now, contrasting again, Enuma Elish Right? The narrative of Babylon and the surrounding nations. 
In the Bible, a man or a woman is a creature designed and made by God as part of God's world. Now, however you might interpret God's activity in creation to scientific theories, if you're going to be faithful to what the Bible says, you cannot think of yourself or others as merely random products of time and chance. The Bible does, it just says, no, sorry. You've been created by God in his image and you've been given a purpose. There is design and intent. Humans are creaturely, they're created. Uh, but, and yet, they're very special creatures of that. So the biblical account tells us that God created mankind in his own image and after his likeness. He created them male and female. This isn't said about any other creation or creature, this close relation to God. God created them to be rulers, it says, over his good kingdom, the earth. And God blesses them, right? There's harmony and peace between God, mankind, and the earth. Listen to what he says again. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. You know, there's some people that think that the, this, this original sin was Adam and Eve having sex. Like, God creates them, and he's like, yeah, it's good, it's good, okay. What the heck, you know? Like, what were you doing, you know? You weren't supposed to do that, no, from the beginning. Be fruitful and increase in number. Well, how do you do that? You know, it's like... <laughs> like, that's not what the original sin is. And they're like, is it, you know, a quince? Is it an apple? It must be an avocado, right? Because it's filled with fat. Like, I know it. Um, we don't know. Sorry, that's such a tangent. But God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule. There's that word. Rule. Have dominion. Be king and queen. Over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Notice, mankind is not bearing the burden of God or the gods, but is crowned with dignity and honor as the chief of God's creation. And according to Psalm 8, listen to this, you have made humans a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim in the paths of the ocean. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What are humans that you would do this, that you would elevate them to such a place? The psalmist marvels at this. Now when we step back and think about humans as image bearers of God, what that means, we often talk about dignity, worth, value, rights, right? It's so fascinating because we are living at a time when we want all the meaning and purpose of the Genesis account, but without the creator who purposed all of it. We want all of this, and we want all like the you know, Sermon on the Mount, we want all that goodness. Like, oh yeah, love, forgiveness, charity, mercy, forgiveness, oh yeah, yeah, give me, give me that, you know? We want all that without the authority of God. We want the kingdom without the king. And that's a definition of post-Christendom, where we're at right now. We want the kingdom without the king. Christians believe that humans are created equal and are endowed with honor and worth because they've been created in the image of the one true God. Now, our secular culture also believes in human rights and yet simultaneously holds to an atheistic evolutionary view of life. These don't work. You can't have both. They have no basis for human rights except for, this is what my Western viewpoint says. 
I have evolved. My life is a total accident. Life is completely meaningless. It's going nowhere. And yet, I must be this type of person. I must do these things. You can't do that to that person. You can't say that. You can't be like that. You can't treat those people like that. Why not? Why not? Well, because America says so. Well, Africa says other. Is your culture better than our culture? Is your culture more enlightened than our culture? It just becomes a culture battle. It's one person or one culture's idea against another. There's no transcendent or outside authority or morality to appeal to. But people believe this with all their hearts, right? And they fight with all their might for human rights and equality for all. Well, so they say equality for all. Um, And at the same time, reject the idea of being created by God. This is intellectual dishonesty. If you believe your life has meaning and purpose, that has to come from somewhere. But there is, of course, a cost, right? If meaning and purpose comes from outside of us, this means we don't belong to ourselves. It means our purpose isn't for us to make up. Our identity as male or female isn't ours to decide. In fact, we can only find our true purpose and meaning as we submit to our creator. And according to Genesis, humanity's identity is rooted in their creator and the vocation that he has given them. So let's talk about that vocation. And this will be the last thing we talk about. And then we'll be done. I taught you everything you need to know about creation. You're welcome, right? Um, So as mentioned already, the surrounding nations saw humanity as a sort of afterthought of creation. right? Created for bearing the burden of the gods, to do the work for the gods so they can rest. In Genesis... However, God crowns humans as the pinnacle of his creation and sets them over all the, all the work of his hands. But why? That, that, that's a good question to ask, right? Why is God doing this? And it's incredible. I mentioned this already when I was on one of my tangents. Uh, but the God of the universe wants to share his goodness and glory with his creation. God is relational, and he wants relationship with and to partner with humanity. This is It's incredible. Now, in the beginning, when God created the heaven and the earth, we see in chapter 2 that he places the first humans in the Garden of Eden. Now, let me help you for a second. Don't think English garden. Don't think your backyard in Santa Rosa or Rohnert Park. We're talking like National Park. Think Yosemite. Think Yellowstone. Maybe that'll help you kind of imagine, like, what this is. This is vast, massive National Park. It's got four rivers in it. It's got all sorts of trees and plants and all of this, right? Like, it's just incredible. All these animals are there. And God commanded humanity to work it and take care of it or keep and protect it. Now, this same term God uses to describe the priestly temple work of the Levites in in November, in Numbers... It might have been November, who knows. Uh, In Numbers 3, verses 7 through 8. That's like mind-blowing to me, okay? And maybe I'm like a total Bible nerd and you guys are like, and? So God makes this garden, this incredible place. He puts the humans in it and he says, do my temple work. Do my priestly work. Tend and keep it. Watch over and protect it. Adam and Eve's garden work is a form of worship. 
They are the garden, the guardians or gardeners of God's sacred space. Now, I said this a moment ago. Let me just kind of unpack this for all of you. Eden is a temple. Genesis 1 and 2 is not about creation versus evolution. You know what it's about? It's about a temple. That's what it's about. It's the meeting of heaven and earth. Have you thought about that? These two places are coming together. Did you guys watch the video, the Bible Project video on heaven and earth? I know Scott did. We talk about it all the time. Who else is in the house? Come on, anybody? It was so good and it's so enlightening. Like, oh my gosh, yeah. It's this crossover, this place where heaven and earth come together, where God dwells with people and there's harmony and there's peace, there's life, there's flourishing. This is the language that is coming out of Genesis. The meeting of heaven and earth, the divine and the human meeting, almost all commentators that I have read see the first pages of scripture painting a picture of a cosmic temple being fashioned where God and humanity dwell together in harmony and shalom. God makes his habitat Eden and then sets his image in it, mankind, right? And this is exactly what the pagans would do. They would set up their temple to Ra, and then they would set up Ra's image in the temple, or they would set up a, a, you know, an image to Dagon. This is the god of the Philistines. Again, I'm a Bible nerd, so I know this kind of stuff, right? It's the god of the Philistines. He's a god, guy with like a fish head, and they set Dagon, this image, in Dagon's temple. And it's to say, this is Dagon's sacred space. This is his house. And you can come in and you can hang out with Dagon and you can hear from Dagon and interact with Dagon, but this is his house, this is his place. So this is what God is doing. He takes his image, it's not you know, made out of wood or made out of metal or any of these things, it's a human being, and he sets it in Eden to say to all the animals and to the heavenly realm, this is my space, this is where I rule, this is my kingdom, this is my spot. And that's the language that's being used here. And this, when you step back, you guys, it's pointing us towards God's plan from the beginning. God's plan from the beginning is to dwell with his creation. God's plan from the beginning is to be God in our midst. And if, when you read the Bible from cover to cover, you, begin, you, you actually see this. In the beginning, you have the paradise of God. He's there with his people. And there's the tree of life there in the midst of them. And when you open the pages of Revelation, the last pages, God is in the midst of his people. They're in the, the holy place, and the tree of life is there. These are these bookends. The story's done. It's been fulfilled. God has accomplished what he had al- always had planned, which is to be with his creation in harmony and shalom. Now, he tells Adam and Eve to have dominion over the land and the animals, to fill the earth, and to bring it into submission. Now, this is an interesting word, uh, and we don't have time to talk about maybe the spiritual ramifications of that. If you would like to, I'm available, and I love that stuff because I'm a nerd. So, um, but when we think of having dominion, we think of violent terms, right? We think of um, mastery uh, wrestling, victory, and war. And unfortunately, there's been uh, a lot of this exploitative view of the submission over creation. So I think what we have to do is we have to step back and say, who is telling Adam and Eve to rule? Who is the one that's telling Adam and Eve to bring the earth into submission? To bring it under their dominion? Who is it? It's God. It's Yahweh. The kind, generous God who is commanding this work of mastery, this work of submission of the earth. 
Adam and Eve are to take the natural resources that God has put into the earth and cultivate them in such a way that they will produce an abundance for many. We see this theme all throughout the rest of the Bible. Do righteousness with the resources that you have. Do justice with the resources that you have. Take what you have and work hard to bless many. God is saying, in essence, rule in the same way that I have ruled over or do rule over you. He has richly provided this garden with fruit trees and vegetables, water, right? It's a home for mankind. It's a paradise. And God's great rule is seen in his service and generosity toward humanity, not his exploitation of it. Rule in the same way. Image me is what God says. And this is the idea. We're going to go back into this temple language, right? Fill the whole earth with this same rule with which I rule over you. Now, this is, this is char talking, so the Bible doesn't say this per se. But I believe that Eden is to the rest of the earth what Normandy was to World War II. It's the beachhead. It's, it's this plot of land where God puts his flag down, puts his image down. There's a border to it and says, this is my kingdom. Adam and Eve, I want you to take, take in the vision and I want you to spread this to the ends of the earth. So that the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. The whole earth will be filled with image bearers of God. Those who rule like God rules. Those who love like God loves, that the whole earth will be filled with his glory and his goodness, his light, his peace. God is calling Adam and Eve to spread out the boundary of the garden to the ends of the earth. As I said, Eden was the beachhead. It was the place where God, humanity, and nature all dwelt in harmony. And God wants to work with Adam and Eve so that Eden will spread to the rest of the world and that the whole earth will be God's temple. Uh, This comes from a quote from a book called The Drama Scripture. It says, A good way to express humankind's dominion over creation may be to say that we are God's royal stewards, put here to develop the hidden potentials in God's creation so that the whole of it may celebrate his glory. Humans, pull out the natural resources of the earth, create like artists as I have created and show the rest of creation how good this place is that I have made and let it point back to my goodness and my glory. That, that was the idea there. And this is humanity's commission to fill the earth with God's goodness and blessing with his reign and rule and yet... There is another option. Here's what I have for you, humanity. Here's what I have. Take in the blessings that I have provided you. Take them in. Make them your own. Assimilate them. Create. Express yourself back in praise. Mature. Grow in this habitat that I've given you. And yet, there's another way. There is a tree, we're told, in the midst of the garden, and it's the tree of knowledge. Good knowledge, but also knowledge of evil. 
you know, we can speculate all we want. And every, you know, how many times do you have that conversation? Why, God? Why is the tree there? You know? Why, why did God put the tree there in the first place? And we can get into, like, you know, all the ideas about free will and choosing God and having options and all this kind of stuff. But can I just back up from that for a second and just say, this is life every single day. So often we want to go back and be like, I wouldn't have done it if I was Adam. Like, dude, shut up. Like, yes, you would have. It would have been no different had it been anybody else. And especially, like, in our fallen state, like, no, 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 I'm in a good place right now. Well, you are right now, you know. <laughs> like, maybe, maybe today you might have chosen, right? But I think that the question as we close Genesis 1 and 2 is, what will the humans do? Will they do what God has called them to? Will they live in the limits that God has set for them? Will they strike out on their own and seek knowledge, maturity, meaning, and purpose, right and wrong, apart from God and apart from his authority? Will they choose to listen and obey the voice of God, seeing all that he has done for them? Or will they try and have the kingdom without the king? Now this is, again, this is char, this is, it seems to me, speculation, but the way that I see it is, I believe God would have given Adam and Eve of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. But see, I see this as God is a father. He, he's about discipleship, apprenticeship, and he wants Adam and Eve to come to him for that, to lean on him, to grow, to learn from him, to image him, right? That was the original intent. Image me. And so I believe that in time and maturity and learning to image God and grow in that image, God would have given them of the tree of knowledge and good and evil when they were able to discern right from wrong. He would have given them that knowledge. But see, Adam and Eve, they don't want that. We'll talk about this next week. But they want the kingdom without the king. And here's the, here's the truth. Adam and Eve are not so different than the nation of Israel, right? Oh, Pharaoh, how could he harden his heart so many times when God had so obviously worked in his life, and yet we're reading through Exodus and Leviticus, and we're like, wow, Israel's not too different from Pharaoh. And then just take that a little further, and you're like, Pharaoh's not that different from me. I hardened my heart. I don't want God's authority over my life. I want the kingdom without the king. And so the question for all of us is, will we choose to obey God out of gratitude, seeing his kindness and goodness, or will we choose to strike out on our own, to center our lives around ourselves? These are the choices we make every day, you guys. This isn't some like far off another world where there's this you know, paradise garden. This is today. This is tomorrow. Who will you be? Every day, will we live under our own wisdom and rule, or will we choose to live under God's wisdom and rule? So reading the Genesis creation story helps us, I think, make sense of our disordered and often chaotic lives. We don't recognize and honor God as the rightful king over the world and our lives. We don't image and reflect God's goodness, his kindness, his justice, his righteousness, and love the way we were created to. We are not partnering with God to build his kingdom here on earth. Most of our lives are about ourselves. They're about our own happiness. They're about our kingdoms. And yet, our lives are disordered. They're chaotic. 
They're depressing. Sometimes we wonder, what? What is the purpose? What's my meaning? What am I supposed to do? And the problem is we're thinking in terms of, you know, the captain of our own fate and our own destinies. And it's, you were made for God. That's a problem. Our problem is we were made for God and we pretend like we were made for ourselves and by ourselves. We were made for his presence to live in fellowship with him. Augustine says it so wisely. Oh, Lord, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, O Lord. Now, our cultural narrative tells us the only way to experience true peace, freedom, and happiness is if we are fully in charge of our lives. Uh, We're even to this point of believing that any responsibility put on us by any authority, whether that's religious authority, it's our family authority, it's, you know, some sexual ethic, it's some moral authority, some societal authority, is a curb on our freedom of becoming our true selves. This is the... Um, redemptive narrative of self. You know, oh, all these things are, are curbing me from who I'm really supposed to be, and so I need to get rid of all this, get rid of all these requirements and all this authority, and find my inner child again. Find pleasure again. It's all about me. It's all about self. And many people are doing this, right? They're discovering their true self. Oh, don't forget to do self-care. You know, you can't really take care of anybody until you take care of yourself. I mean, people say this kind of stuff like it's like fact. It's a religion is what it is. It's a belief in self. And of course, yes, you do need to take care of yourself. Please, shower. Please. Like, rest. Please, eat healthy. Please, do all those things. Be human, please. Nobody's... I hope nobody's speaking against those sorts of things. But we're taking it to this extreme. Now, let me say this. I said this a few months ago. I need to say it again. In Christianity, we do not discover our true selves. That is not what the biblical narrative is about. It's not about self-discovery. It's not. In the biblical narrative, I am a long way from home. That's what the biblical narrative says. Why am I lost? Why am I disordered? Why does my life suck? Why am I depressed? Why, why is there just like chaos and breakdown and disappointment after disappointment? Why don't these things fulfill me? Why am I never satisfied? Why doesn't sex do it? Why doesn't food do it? Why doesn't achievement do it? Why, do, why don't any of these things work? Because you're a long way from home. That's why. Because you were created for God, for his presence, for his fellowship. You were created in his image, to image him, to imitate him, to learn from him, to be his apprentice. And you were created to co-labor and partner with him to make the earth his dwelling place. We are a long way from home, people. But here's the incredible thing. You can't find yourself, but God came on a rescue mission to find us. That's the story of the Bible. I'm a long way away from home, who I was created and intended to be by God. But in this grand story of God, God comes to rescue me from myself, from what sin has worked in my life, in order that I can be who he created me to be. This is what we were made for. For God, for his love, for his friendship, for his fatherly care, to know him, to partner with him. 
And when we surrender to that, we begin to see the parts of our life, the fragmented pieces of our life begin to come together to give us a whole new way to experience life, the claim of the New Testament. Jesus comes that we might have life, life in all of its fullness, life at peace with the Creator. So next time you're in the pages of Genesis, remember, the story is about the king, the great king. The story is about his creation, his good kingdom. It's about covenant partnership. You were created for God to partner with him, to image him. Remember those things. And that will bring us in line to understand the grand story of the Bible, what it's all about, what this, what today is all about. Will we choose to strike out on our own? Will we choose to live for ourselves? Or will we submit to the story? Will we find our story being caught up in the story of God? Father, Lord, you have rescued us in Jesus. We believe that. And yet, Lord, we need daily rescuing. Lord, even now, Lord, some of us have colluded with the powers that be. We have uh, hitched our trailer to these things that are so opposite of your image. of self-giving love and service, generosity. Lord, we've centered our lives on ourselves and we need rescuing again. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would, like Carissa told us this morning, Lord, that you would help us to fix our eyes on Jesus who had that place of authority with you in eternity. And he laid it aside to come on this self-destructive rescue mission to pull our lives out of chaos and darkness, to breathe into us the breath of life and to make us a new creation through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. Jesus, you rescued and redeemed us. Lord, help us, Lord. We call ourselves by your name, and yet we try to live our lives so different from you. It can't work. Bring us back to you, Lord. Even now, Lord, I just myself, Lord, I, I want to be brought back into line to behold Jesus, to become more like him in my parenting, in my being a husband, am I being a friend and being a neighbor? It's not about me. It's not about us, Lord. It's about Jesus. It's about following him. And so would you bring us back into that again? Would you show us how full and how rich life can be when we do what we were created to do, when we become who we were created to be? And Lord, now as we worship, as we respond, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to work deep in our hearts, like Carissa said as well, Lord. Would we look at, Lord, what's underneath those things that we're chasing after? What's behind this? What am I after? What, do, what am I looking for? And where do I think I'm going to find it? 
And Lord, bring us back to you, we ask. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for his glory and honor. Amen.